2: coordinator at the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and welcome to Maryland State Library for the Blind for a very special Writer's Live tonight. We're thrilled to have longtime Baltimore Sun columnist, podcaster, and just all-around respected Baltimorean Dan Rodgers here talking about his new book, Father's Day Creek, on fly fishing, fatherhood, and the last best place on earth. He embraced fly fishing in the early 1990s, and that style of fishing opened up doors to new relationships with people and places, and one place in particular, the secret creek in Pennsylvania that, once allowed to recover recover from harmful overfishing, became a trout paradise again. And we'll also get a special demonstration from his son Nick tonight. So you could say it's an all-hands-on-deck kind of evening. It's where you laugh. <laughs> <laughs> after the conversation, uh, after the talk, we'll have a Q&A, and then there will be time to mingle and buy books from the Ivy Bookshop. And we are podcasting the event, so during the Q&A, please wait for me to come to you with a microphone so we can hear you clearly. Um, so please give a warm welcome to Dan Rodericks.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Tracy. Keith. Thank you all for coming uh, tonight. Um, my son, Nick, is tying a woolly bugger. Uh, <laughs> right? Are you done? Did you Type one? It? Yeah. Let me see. Uh, this, this is... is he has to review all Oh, so this is pretty gonna, good. Uh, yeah, this is... Uh, this is... Uh, I'm not going to be on mic the whole Do time.
2: Can you hold it, or... Uh, you need it for the know, recording?
0: The yeah. Okay, well... Would you hand this to the audience, please? <laughs> <laughs> just well, pass it around. Yeah, I'll just stand here. Not De- try not to hook yourself on it. Uh, it, is, it is a. I'll, I'll leave this here if you want to walk around. Is that what that is? Oh, oh okay. you could just. And, yeah? Yep. Okay. You- Sorry. Um, what was I saying? Oh, Nick it's just tied a woolly boogie. bugger, which is a very common fly that we use. Um, it imitates in the water. It has a tail made of marabou, which is a a cousin of the ostrich. And uh, it looks like, a when it's wet and in the water, it looks like a minnow or a crayfish, they tell us. And uh, it often catches fish. It's very effective at catching trout and almost any kind of fish. Um, so Nick is going to continue to tie while I talk tonight, and you can uh, get a look at that. So we uh, we fished together, and Nick has... Uh, Learned to tie some very good flies. He's very good at it. So anyway, and I'll I'll be showing you uh, some slides tonight of places where we fished. A lot of people don't know this, but I am an award-winning outdoors writer. Um, It's it's not widely known. Most people don't regard me as an outdoors writer and wondered why I wrote a book about fly fishing in the outdoors. But when I was seven years old, I entered a contest (laughs) off the back of a Wheaties box Which was for a fish story. You were supposed to write a fish story and send it into Wheaties, and maybe you'd win a prize. And I wrote a a story about uh, using one of my father's very heavy, very big uh, uh, deep-sea bluefish lures to catch fish in a, a stinky little pond in the town that I grew up in in Massachusetts, and. Well, it's a long story, but anyway, it was a, it was a fish tale, and I actually won a prize from Wheaties when I was seven years old. And now looking back on it, that was probably the first time I wrote anything that anybody else ever read that thought was any good. So, so uh, I, I am an award-winning outdoors writer, um, and but also uh, someone did ask, you know, why why did you write a book about fly fishing? You're an urban Baltimore City columnist, news columnist for 40 years. I'm in my 40th year now with the Sun Papers. Um, and it's because I just, I wanted to. I felt like I had encountered something really important and profound in my life, and I wanted to share it with people. And so there's a couple of different things going on in this book. You remember, uh, I don't know if you've ever read Hemingway's short story, a two part short story called Big Two-Hearted River was one of Hemingway's Nick Adams stories. And it had a very sp- special effect on me when I was, in, I think in high school is when I read it. And I read it on sort of the boy's life level. Nick Adams comes home from World War I, uh, and he want, the first thing he wants to do is go trout fishing up in Michigan. He wants to be back on a river in the woods camping. He goes by himself, he sets up a tent, he starts a fire, he goes fishing for trout using grasshoppers as bait on a fly rod, which is cheating, but he did. <laughs> anyway, when I was a kid, when I read that, I read it on sort of, like I say this boy's life level, it was like, this was almost like an instructional on how to set up a tent, how to start a fire, how to, how to, how to heat up your brew coffee on a campfire, and how to catch trout fish. But I realized later when I read it, and then I've read it again recently, is that this is all about regenerating your soul. This is about a guy coming home from war who needs to feel life at the end of a fly line again. Um, he, needs to, he needs to immerse his, his body, his hands, his feet in the water that, that, that fish live in. And it's all full of all this great symbolism in the, that, that early Hemingway big two-hearted river. So, um, when I started fly fishing almost 30 years ago, the thing that excited me about it was that it put me, that it, it made me think more about the environment of fish, about the insect life in rivers, about how rivers course, how they change, the chemistry of rivers, um, <clears throat> the flies that trout eat. <laughs> I, I had to think more about what I was doing and I enjoyed the I enjoyed that part of it. It was you had to think about it a lot more. And it wasn't just about catching fish. It was about being there. And so when I learned about fly fishing, I started going to this creek in Pennsylvania that I had access to because of friends of my in-laws. And I just I wouldn't say I fell in love with the place. I just I fell in familiar with the place. I fe- I went, kept I went there several times a year and then always on Father's Day for many years and I felt like I knew every azalea bush every um, rhododendron every hemlock tree every boulder and soon every trout in the river and I don't know if you've ever had this experience about returning to a place in the outdoors more than once frequently I don't know if Everybody gets to do that. I didn't do it until I started fly fishing. And now I like going to the familiar places and feeling this emotional connection with the environment. Uh, So part of the subtitle of the book, the book does deal with fly fishing, but it's not an instructional fly fishing book. And it's not an instructional book on fatherhood either. (laughs) Um, Because I don't claim to be an expert in either but there are some ideas and thoughts I wanted to share. This idea of the last best place on Earth sounds grandiose, you know. It's like, what do you mean? And I simply, I asked that question that you might ask around a campfire after a few drinks. You know, um, where would you like to be when the world comes to an end? And there's lots of different ways to answer that. Um, And I thought I would like to be on that stream or just laying down in the, in the cool moss next to it as this river goes by, because it's so beautiful. And it, it's, this is not a picture of Father's Day Creek behind me, but it's very close to, it's similar to uh, Father's Day Creek. This is the Savage River in western Maryland <clears throat> that I'll tell you more about in a minute. So now that I've presented this idea of the last best place, and I don't know that I've explained it well enough. I think I had to put it into a book. Um, Now that I've presented the idea with the intention of telling you about Father's Day Creek, I bet you can identify and describe your last best place. I bet you know exactly what I mean. That place you visit once a year, if not physically, at least in memory. A small piece of the planet you consider your own. And I'm not talking necessarily about a tourist hotspot a spectacular canyon or mountain range in a national park. I'm talking about a more intimate place that has personal meaning, a spot beneath a tree you've long admired, a simple boulder along a trail with a mesmerizing view, or a quiet clearing in woods, maybe a familiar slice of lakefront, or an acre of beach you knew as a child. You don't have to own the place. In fact, you probably don't but you've always felt a strong, oddly familiar connection to it. I've come to suspect that at certain moments in life something in the primal brain takes over and triggers a deep-rooted sensation, as if the ancestors inside us have been stirred awake by something that looks, sounds, or smells familiar to them. It could be the aroma of venison cooking on an open fire. It could be the sound of wind in a tree line. It could be the site of a rocky shore. There's been some speculation and even some research about DNA holding the memories of ancestors, the idea being that we've inherited the effects of long-ago experiences from all those people we never knew, the ancients who rest at the roots of our family trees. Maybe something like that is at work when we visit and revisit these special places. And uh, fly fishing has taken me to a lot of special places, starting with right here in Maryland, uh, in the Gunpowder River, 20 miles north of us here, 25 miles north of us here, and to Western Maryland. And I've learned a lot about rivers from fisheries biologists and other fishermen, anglers. And uh, I just love to be in this environment, immersed in it. And I like to catch fish, but there are days when I don't catch fish. (laughs) The fish are smarter than me, and uh, that's okay. At least I know that they're there uh, because they show themselves on the surface of rivers. They come up and swallow flies, and you have to imitate the fly that the trout is using in order to catch it. And sometimes that works, and a lot of times it doesn't work. (laughs) Um, I thought I would show you some of these places that we've, we've visited over the years and tell little stories about each one. Can I just uh, start this with the, by pushing on the, the start button? Yeah. i okay. it. Can we lower the volume a little bit? I'm sorry. Where is it? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yes. Let's see where we are here. This is the Savage River in, in Western Maryland. It is, uh comes out of a dam, the Savage River Dam, in Savage River State Forest, and the water is very cold because it comes out of a dam and sustains trout. Trout need, especially the rainbow trout, need to live in water that's yeah, a little bit lower. Sixty to seventy degrees at tops. There's brown trout, and then there's these beautiful creatures. This is called a, a brook trout, which is the only really native trout to our state, to Maryland, and actually to the East Coast. The other trout that we catch, rainbow trout, brown trout, cutthroat trout, are all introduced in the East. But the brook trout, if you go into, we go in sometimes the little streams like this in the Savage River State Forest and catch these little brook trout um, because they're so beautiful. in the In the fall when they spawn, their uh, their fin up here, it turns a raspberry color, and it's uh, just beautiful little fish. And you know that the, the water is healthy because brook trout can live in them, because trout can live in them. So Western Maryland has lots of beautiful rivers, and for Maryland taxpayers who pay <coughs> taxes to support the Department of Natural Resources to restore these rivers and keep them clean and healthy, this is a This is a creek called uh, Lost Land Run that flows into the big river out there, which is the uh, north branch of the Potomac River. You're gonna see this in a minute. The north branch is one of the great stories in Western Maryland. This is a a look at it. It's the north branch of the Potomac River that was a dead river by 1985 or so. It flowed orange with mine drainage and other minerals. that killed everything in it. It had no had no trout, <laughs> it had no crayfish, it had no minnows, it had no insect life. It was really dead. So the state decided to start feeding the creeks that feed the big river lime, powdered lime. They, they gave a big Rolaids tablet, uh, basically, over the course of several years, and the river came back. A lot of Marylanders don't get to see it because there isn't a lot of access to it. You, there's only a few places where you can actually park your car and see it, for now. Uh, and when we fish it, I, you have to pay, I don't have to, but we could fish it on foot, but we take a, a guided trip uh, with one of the fellows who uh, used to work for the fisheries department out there, Ken Pable. So now, these pictures were taken last summer. It's producing uh, wild brown trout and rainbow trout now. So. 30 years later, this is a complete, total environmental success success story because they treated the water with lime and they continue to treat it with lime. It's done through a a system called a dozer system. So there's like five creeks that feed the big river this milky, milky water of lime that offsets the acid that made this water healthy. So here we are in the raft last July and I'm sitting in the back of the boat watching my son who made an excellent cast of a fly to with a guide whose name is Ken Pavel, who used to be one of the fisheries guys. He's actually the hero of this story. He's the guy who saved the river. Um, And then he became a guide in his retirement. He told Nick exactly where to cast the fly, because he knew exactly where this trout was, or thought it was, and Nick hooked him. And you can see Nick is playing, I don't know if you can see the line this fly line is playing the fish in the water, trying to get him out of the fast water without breaking his line to get him in the net. So uh, it's kind of remarkable. When I first went out to Western Maryland and they told me this story, the people who lived there would just laugh about fishing in this river because no one bothered even to visit it. And there's, there's all of these underwater reservoirs still from from abandoned mines that fill up with water, fill up with acidic water. They still have to do that. Look at that rainbow trout. This is a pushing 20 inches. This is not a trout that was stocked in the river. This is a trout that was born in the river, which is a big, big difference. You, know, uh, you all know about trout stocking. Every spring, in Maryland and Pennsylvania, other states, go out and put fish from hatcheries in rivers so that people can catch them. Those are rivers that can't sustain trout all year. This river and others in Western Maryland can sustain trout life all year. So this rainbow trout was bred in the river, born from you know little eggs in a rock somewhere, probably three or four years ago. And there there he is, you're gonna get a look at him here. I'd like to tell this story because the North Branch is just a it's just a great story, and it's not overfished now. They're very careful about how many guides are on the river, um, and like I said, the access isn't great because the state has not purchased enough land to provide public access yet. But but they will, and there's a, there's a new park in fact opening this year. There's uh, a look at this rainbow trout. Nick's having a little trouble there. Come on, Nick. There he is. Yeah, and we put him back. We don't, I haven't killed a fish in the, uh, uh, I haven't hit, killed a trout in, uh, ever intentionally. And uh, I don't know that Nick has ever harvested a trout. I don't think so. So we put him back, and that, that trout swam away with all this muscle in his tail. And there was nothing wrong with that, that trout, even though it took him a while. And he was probably pouting uh, for, for a while after that. And this is some of the scenes I want to show you here. This is a, the, our own Gunpowder River, which comes from Pretty Boy Dam. Pretty Boy, the, you know, used dam water. It's called the tail water. Uh, the, the water coming out of the bottom of the dam is very cold, 40 to 50 degrees, and that can sustain trout life. And that's what the state of Maryland, Baltimore City, and Trout Unlimited did more than 30 years ago to establish uh, a year-round fishery in the Gunpowder River. And if you've ever been up there on the trails, it's... Uh, you, sh- you should take a hike up there if you haven't. It's really beautiful. This is in Baltimore City. Now, this is this is not trout fishing. This is rockfish fishing at the Hanover Street Bridge in South Baltimore. Uh, Nick and I went out there, explored it last fall, and uh, just cast off the rocks in West Covington Park in the middle branch of the Patasco. And uh, we had some luck catching uh, rockfish with a fly rod. People say, how do you catch a Saltwater fish or a rockfish with a fly rod, it's a, and it's use, a heavier, use heavier equipment. <laughs> use a, a heavier fly rod in order to catch heavier fish. Lefty, Lefty Cray, who was, uh, is, is a rockfish the, in the Potasco. Lefty Cray, who wrote the foreword for the book, was uh, famous for saltwater fly fishing, having pretty much established that you could do it and showed people how to do it. it, became world famous in the process. This is shad fishing, the shad run in uh, April, com- the shad run up uh, the Susquehanna River, up through the bay, up into Deer Creek in Hartford County. And that's a lot of fun to do on a fly rod as well. Um, that's uh, Steve Shad Merkle, who's a fellow I met. Is one of the interesting people I met while fishing. He smoke a cigar. and. Uh, Invites you over to sit next, stand next to him and fish. Nice nice guy. This is Father's Day Creek. This is a place I write about up in uh, Pennsylvania. And there's. if you look on a map, you won't find Father's Day Creek. I had to give it a different name because uh, I just didn't want, I don't know, I don't want people to read the book and say, hey, i got to go there. So it's my own private Idaho, I suppose. Even though I don't have any title to it, and the, one of the landowners... The fellow on this side of the river tried to kick us out of there once, even though we had permission to fish. Uh, we made peace with him, and it just there just aren't many people to go in there to fish. Um, it's a it, so that's another reason why I kind of like it. Okay, I'm gonna hit replay. It's on pause. Oh, there it goes. Okay. Um, a few more places to visit here. Um, this is the Yakagani River. I'm going to talk a lot about Western Maryland because they go out there a lot because the water is so good. Some of these rivers look like big Western, uh, big Western rivers, something you might see in Idaho or, or Montana. Uh, and, and the Yacogheny is one of these places. Um, there's, a, there's a trout that lives right here. <laughs> oh, <no>. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that, that boulder is is famous among the, the people who go there a lot because that's the one place where trout like to they like to hide behind that rock and watch food watch for food flowing down the river toward them. But this is the Yakagani Just the, can, can I add also
1: yeah. yakugane, the Yacagani they raft?
0: Oh yeah, Yacagani uh, they they open the dam at the Deep Creek Lake, and they get the water uh, up pretty high. They have a big release of water this. Uh, whitewater kayakers and rafters on the river, but this is a, this is a, in the regular conditions of the of the river when you can actually wade in it and fish, and it holds rainbow trout and brown trout. And uh, Nick and I have been there quite a bit. This is a, this is called Sang Run. That road is called Sang Run Road, and uh, it comes from. They think it comes from. An Indian word for uh, ginseng. There's ginseng grows along there. Um, and there's a, a new state park that just opened up called Sangrun Run State Park, which is a great place to take uh, little kids uh, because there's a lot of activities there for, for children. It's just almost like a pocket park. It's very small, but it is on the map now. And the river's right near there. You can there's a there's a really nice bench, <laughs> maybe one of Maryland's finest benches is on this uh, river. You can just sit on the bench and watch the river flow by. Now, Nick spotted a trout rising up, some trout taking a bug on the other side of the river. So he went across the river and cast to him. And sometimes you luck out uh, mm. with, with a fish like that. That's also a, a rainbow trout. So, uh, the Savage River, this is another shot of the, from the Yakagami. this is moving a little slowly, uh, it's because my wife asked me to slow it down. She she's the, she saw the first version of it, she thought I was talking too fast, so she slowed it down. Have you been to uh, Swallow Falls State Park? Mm-hmm. So the Yokogany River runs through Swallow Falls, <laughs> another great place to visit, um, and it flows north. I don't know, if this might sound a little strange to you. The Yokogany River flows from the headwaters actually at, at the West Virginia Maryland border, and they flow north into Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And it connects with, it runs for many miles from Pennsylvania and connects with the Allegheny River. Mon- the Allegheny.
1: Mon- 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 Mon-
0: yes, right. But it's strange to think of a river flowing north, but that's what it does. That's a uh, brown trout from the yacht that I didn't catch. Somebody else caught that. Um, Also, the the Castleman River, which is the next one you're going to see, which is in Amish country around the town of Grantsville, Maryland, that also flows north into Pennsylvania. It's also a a fine trout stream. So anyway, this is the Castleman River. So two two or three years ago, I was fishing there on a May weekday morning. And the thing that's so wonderful about it is there's no sound other than the river There's no tractor sound, there's no tractor trailer sound, even though the highway isn't that far away. I think there's no flyway there because there've been times when I just would stand still and listen and only hear the river flowing. And then one day in this area where Nick, this picture of Nick fishing, I was in the same area and there was a boulder. I had caught four or five trout, I was having a good day, so I sat down on a rock to savor it, and it was completely silent, until I started hearing clip-clop, 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 and up on the road, River Road, came an Amish buggy <clears throat> with three small children in it and a young woman driving it, and I'm sitting there thinking, wow, what century am I in here? <laughs> this, is, this is amazing, um, that's, and that's, these are all shots from the Castleman River. That's a a rainbow trout that Nick caught there. There's another larger trout that Nick caught. Nick's been doing pretty well uh, catching large trout. He outfishes me. And now we're back to the Savage River. So anyway, give you an idea of the pretty places uh, uh, this this, uh, activity has taken me and some of the people I met. So the book deals with my father. And his type of fishing versus my type of fishing, my father was a uh, bring-home-the-fish guy. He uh, was Portuguese-American and um, had a Portuguese mother who had many Portuguese friends who all expected when we went fishing that we would bring home lots of codfish, and and we did. So uh, I I didn't want to, as I got older, I didn't want to kill fish, Um, and I got bored with fishing, and I stopped fishing. But then I picked it up again in 1990, 91, something like that, um, when I picked up fly fishing. And um, I met some very interesting people. And there's one I want to tell you about. This is an encounter I had, I describe in the book, uh, on the Gunpowder River up near Moncton. I had an encounter with a stranger that turned into one of those Remarkable moments in which something like the secret to happiness appears. That sounds grandiose also, but I think you know what I mean about moments like that. They are strange, beautiful epiphanies. Something happens in the blink of an eye, in an act of kindness, in the sound of extraordinary music that answers some question you've had about what it means not only to be human, but to be happy about it. It was 1996, and I was having one of my blue days, depressed or overworked or just bothered by something. I had to get away from the grind, so I decided to go fishing in the Gunpowder River about 20 miles north of Baltimore. Cheaper than going to a shrink, a fishing companion used to say. So I parked my car and hiked to a bridge over the river. I didn't feel like fishing right away. So I stood there, fly rod at rest, and watched the river flow. I turned when I heard a car approach. It was a silver Toyota Cressida. A large man in a polo shirt was at the wheel. I took him to be in his late 60s. He was handsome in some aging movie star way, like Cesar Romero. Our eyes met. He stopped the car and got out, a big barrel-chested man with wavy white hair and a sense of playfulness about him. He stepped toward me and pointed. "'You're Sicilian, aren't you?' he declared in a big boombox of a voice. "'I didn't know what to say except, no, "'and that my mother's people were from Naples, uh, the Naples area of Italy. "'My father was from Madeira, the Portuguese island off the coast of Morocco. "'Good enough,' the man said. "'Naples isn't that far from Sicily, and Sicily and Madeira are both islands.' "'Once the man was satisfied that we were somehow kindred,' He shared personal information, and all in the next 60 seconds. He told me that he was from Sicily, that he'd been a union truck driver, that he was an exceptional cook who made great spaghetti and meatballs, that he taught singing, cantors were among his students, and that he loved opera, and he had quite a set of pipes, and would I like to hear him sing? <laughs> he didn't wait for the answer. This big, jolly man gathered his breath, spread his arms, closed his eyes, and there on the bridge on a summer day, he started singing, to me, to the sky, to the trees, to the river, to the trout. He sang in French, the baritone part from Au Fond du Temple Saint, from Bizet's The Pearl Fishers. Then he switched to Italian, and I don't remember for certain what he sang, and I might have challenged him to sing Non Pion Dry, which is the bass aria from the end of the first act of Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro but whatever it was that he sang, it was gorgeous and delivered with theatrical panache. Ladies and gentlemen, this, this was no singing in the shower voice. This was a professional voice, highly trained with flashes of bravura. My God, we're standing on a bridge over the Gunpowder River, and here's this man with a rich practiced baritone singing to a stranger out of pure and utter joy as if his heart would burst otherwise. It seemed to me... That nothing in the world could ruin this man's day and that he knew the answer to life's inevitable blues lurked in some deep place in the soul find that thing that makes you happy and call it up and never let go find that thing and use it every day if you don't use it you'll lose it he said of his singing voice this man turned out to be casper vecchione something of a legend among serious singers and students in the baltimore region known for his big voice and big personality, a Renaissance man who drove a truck. I learned all this years later, after he died and members of his family contacted me. They had heard the story of Casper singing to a somber-looking newspaper columnist on the bridge over the Gunpowder River. I learned that Casper had been a Sicilian immigrant, the son of a bootlegger, a student of the Peabody Conservatory of Music in Baltimore, veteran of World War II, and a prisoner of war. And I can still hear... Casper singing in Italian on the bridge I thank him for singing the blues away on that summer day and for teaching me in a matter of minutes something about how to be human and happy about it so there's a little story from the book um, oh I had a little bit more show and tell for you um, oh this is not good hey, um, so Uh, People wonder what is that fly fishing all about. Why do you do that? And uh, I don't. uh, And I think I've tried to explain it a little bit. Um, And how do you do it is the other question I get. And basically, we're trying to imitate the flies that uh, the natural flies that. I'm sorry, I walked away with the microphone again. These give you a, a sense of what the flies look like. So. So during the course of the spring and the summer, especially all year, really, uh, trout are eating. They have to eat. In the winter, they slow down a little bit. But during the rest of the year, when they're feeding, especially as they're getting ready to spawn uh, or feeding up for the winter, they eat a lot of what's on the bottom. So when the small fly box comes around, you'll see these imitations of nymphs, of the larval stages of aquatic insects. And they're very specific, and you... You've got to know what they're feeding on that day or I guess really well. <laughs> and then there's the dry flies, which are in the larger box. Those are meant to imitate these mayflies that hatch in the river. So they're in the, for, for a year or so, or maybe longer, some of them, the insects are in the larval and nymphal stage, clinging to rocks at the bottom of a river. And trout come along and see them and eat them. But at some point, they start to emerge. They start to swim, break out of their cases and swim toward the surface, and they start getting frantic about it because they know there's trout around. And the little, the little emerging fly now is trying to spread his wings and come out of the water and emerge and get away before the trout gets them. So you're trying to imitate that fly. I, and my, one time I went to Montana, we fished on a ranch, was The only place where we had we decided we, we were going to pay to fish on this place, so there was a, a woman who owned, owned the ranch. She had a beautiful home with a center hallway and a like a lobby desk, so you had to check in. You give her 50 bucks, and she'd tell you where to go on her ranch. It was called Dupuis Creek, so beautiful, ran through a you know a ranch and with fencing. And there's a mountain with a snow capped mountain behind us, and beautiful. And she said, so, so we said, so what are they biting on? What's hatching? She said, well, at 1.30, there'll be, a light, uh, there'll be a pale morning dun hatch. At 1.30, there'll be a pale morning dun hatch. And she had it on the chalkboard behind her. 1.30, pale morning dun. That's a sort of a creamy-colored mayfly with upright wings like that. And we said, we're kind of laughing. We're four guys from Baltimore, right? And we said, or oh, 1.30, right? Okay, I'll make sure I set my watch. No we make fun. You know, we said this behind her back. And, you know, I want to insult this woman, but to predict that a natural phenomenon can occur at 1.30 seemed ridiculous to us, but so we went out on the river and we fished in the morning. We had a break for lunch. So at 1.30, we're standing there and these little white dots start appearing on the surface of this spring creek. And then trout start emerging and eating these little white dots that are little pale morning dun flies trying to hatch and it was at 1.30 and, and it was uh, kind of remarkable. So when you're there and you see that happen, flies emerging and the trout feeding and you realize there's a lot of trout around here that I haven't been able to catch, uh, it's very humbling and it's quite a phenomenon to see. So um, Yeah. This is, oh, the other part of the show-and-tell is the fly rod. <laughs> um, I guess I... You want me to yeah, I should carry this one. Okay. Um, so this is a fly rod. If you've never seen a fly rod, except for Brad Pitt in the River Runs Through It, maybe. So in the old days, uh, they used bamboo rods. You can still buy a bamboo rod. It costs a lot of money, but you can still use a bamboo rod. This is a graphite rod, which is more commonly manufactured now. And there's the reel, and we don't really use the reel to reel in fish because the fish we catch are small enough so that we can um, retrieve the line with our free hand. So you, I hold the rod with my right hand and retrieve with the left here. The fly line, and you, you, can, you can move this around if you want without poking anybody. okay so I'll just I'll just it. so in the old days the fly line was made of nylon and they would wax the line so that it would float you want the fly line to float on the surface so that the dry fly in that large box uh, with the large box floats on the surface so you want your fly to be on the surface and the trouble to come up right so the line needs to float now the line is nylon coated with some sort of amazing rubber that allows it to float. And so that's, I mean, that's basically it. And then the fly line itself is tied to, uh, attached to a, a leader made of monofilament. In Hemingway's day, it was made of catgut. He describes in that big, 2 hard river using catgut for uh, a leader. And to this, you attach the fly. And then you cast and hope for this. So anyway that's it and it's very light so so you feel the thing I, I tell other fishermen they ask me uh, why do you why do you like this the best is it when you actually catch a fish you feel the whole thing um, you feel the life at the other end of the line more your hand is on the line that the fish tugs on and when you feel that it's like pretty exciting it'll last for a few minutes and then uh, hopefully you don't Oh, we we're going to say this about flies, uh, and Nick will probably back up on this. I, I never catch a fish um, that swallows a the fly. They don't do. They, they get hooked on their very hard mouth, and it stays in there. We also uh, all take the, the barb down on the, on the fly so that it doesn't stay in longer than it has to. Sometimes you lose fish that way. But it's, I feel like it's more humane. And then using the barb. So anyway, uh, so I, I release all these fish. I don't think they, I don't think we kill them. Do you think we kill them? I don't think. I can't think of the last time I felt like I felt bad, like oh, I got it. I shouldn't have done that. Um, so, and maybe the next generation won't even want to do this. I don't know. But I, uh, I feel like it's an improvement over the kind of fishing my father did. <laughs> anyway. Okay. So, does anyone have any questions about all of this? <laughs> What's the weight of that line? This this is a uh, four weight rod. Do you want to hold it? This is a I believe this is a four weight rod. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. we, and, and so so if you go into a salt water, you end up using an eight or nine weight rod. Sometimes a ten weight rod. It's uh the, that number has to do with the weight of the, 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 the strength of the rod. Yeah. So Lefty Cray, I don't know if you knew Lefty Cray. Mm-hmm. Bernard Lefty Cray was an outdoors writer for the Baltimore Sun, the Morning Sun. And in the Evening Sun, we had an outdoors writer named Bill Burton. And I used to, I started off working at the Evening Sun, uh, 43 years ago. Lefty would be in the newsroom, the the Morning Sun part of the newsroom, writing his outdoors column. And every time I walked by his desk, he'd say, "Did you hear the one about the chicken and the nun?" And he'd start telling you some corny joke, you know. So I—I thought he was a morning suns outdoors writer and a funny guy, affable fellow. I had no idea that he was a world famous fly fisherman. And I'm not exaggerating because if you ask people who do this a lot, they can name four or five famous fly fly fishermen, and he was one of them. I didn't know any of this until I. Got into fly fishing, opened the LL Bean catalog, and there's Lefty Cray, you know, endorsing a rod. And so, I got to know him a little bit. I never got to fish with him. Nick and I got a lesson from him once in casting. And he wanted to know what I was doing. He said to me, "What are you doing with that flower? You know, you look like a monkey hoeing cabbage." <laughs> well, that's the way Lefty talked. Like, I still don't know what that so means, that but he gives you an image of something. Anyway, he was famous for uh, uh, casting lessons, and he could cast with accuracy you know, 120, 140 feet. He would do these demonstrations up until he was 90 years old or more. Um, Lefty uh, said that he stopped going to high school reunions because he said the people that he met there would talk about how they spent their day, which was not doing very much, and you know, and he had just gotten back from the Amazon fishing for peacock bass, so he felt bad telling these <laughs> stories <laughs> to his colleagues. Anyway, he's a very funny man. So I asked him to write the foreword for the book because he's a world-famous fly fisherman, and I thought maybe he had a story like that about having a special place in the outdoors that he uh, had this emotional connection with, and he did, and he said he would do it, and then he got sick, and he called me and wrote to me, Apologizing for not being able to do the forward. And I, s- I said, please don't apologize. I'm grateful he even considered doing it. By then he was on oxygen. He lived in Cockeysville. And then January, that was, so that was September of 2017. January 2018 comes and the phone rings and it says, Lefty Cray on my phone. I figured, well, that might be bad news. That could be his daughter calling. Because he was, you know, he basically signed off. Uh, then, this is lefty. Listen, I'm feeling a little better now. Why don't you come over the house? I'll write that forward for you. <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. So I took my laptop computer and I went to sat in his living room and he basically dictated to me off the top of his head this story about the Potomac River and his special place with his son. And uh, I worked, typed it up, sent him, <coughs> sent him back a draft. He made some edits to it and approved it and it's in the book. And uh, Amazing. I mean, he died like a month later. Mm-hmm. So, so I always be grateful for Lefty for doing that, and I feel lucky that I was able to get it. So anyway, so that's that's uh, my spiel. And Nick is uh, tying another wooly bugger. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's one of the bigger flies that we tie because uh, we decided to do that tonight because so you could see it from the audience. Some of the t- some of the flies that we tie are obviously pretty small. So, okay. What am I
1: supposed to do now? Answer some questions. Yeah. So, so what exactly makes a world class uh, fly catcher?
0: What makes a world class fly catcher? A fly fisher person? Um. uh, you know that's like well, well, lefty. With in the case of Lefty Cray, it was a lot of people were learning how to cast, right? Especially saltwater. Because that was kind of new. Uh, people going down to Florida to fish for bonefish and tarpon and other game fish like that. Or even in the Chesapeake Bay, fishing for rockfish. They want to know how to do it. How, to, how do you cast the line? How do you, the, the, the fly doesn't weigh anything, as you can see, right? So you're casting the line. You have to figure out... I wish I, the ceiling was a little higher. I would do it for you. And so Lefty became famous because... That was a time when fly fishing was growing, saltwater fishing was growing, and people wanted to know. So he got, he was flown all around the world to teach people how to fly fish. He taught Tom Brokaw how to fly fish, and Michael Keaton, Julia Roberts, uh, Jimmy Belushi, people like that. And he was a very mod- modest guy, very funny. It, none of these titles or fame mattered to him. Um, he fished with, uh, he fished with President, the Elder Bush and the Younger Bush, both of them. Anyway, what makes him good is that he, he knows how to catch fish, too, right? And there are videos that are made showing people catching fish. Now there's so many of them. But I think uh, what makes you good is you're, uh, you people who can read the water can look at a river and say, there's probably trout over there, and so those people usually catch more fish than I do, <laughs> you know. So, does that answer your question? Lefty was also widely published too. He also wrote several books, uh, magazine articles. You know, that's that's how you do it. So it sounds like, in addition to kind of being able to read the water and know where the fish probably are lurking, it's the ability to accurately place your fly. Yes. Where they're at so they can eat it. Yes, accuracy. So, so in the river, like uh, the Savage River. This is one of my favorite spots because it uh, brings back a memory. Um, yeah, this is a high water. When the water is a little lower, the angler can stand right here. This is a broken dam over here. I don't know if you can see it. This where this this vegetation is. these trees. This is a broken dam on the Savage River, and water's coming through the break here, and it's coming from over here. And over here is a really nice Um, pool of water that has trout in it. And the trout are facing upstream. So the water's flowing this way, the trout are facing upstream because they're always looking they're looking morning, good morning, good morning to other trout. They're always looking to see something on the surface coming their way. So over here is a bridge, right? One of those wooden suspension bridges over the Savage River. So one summer day, this is my, one of my moments of glory. I was standing here, and this a, a man, uh, I guess his wife, and seven or eight kids, a whole bunch of kids, they're all watching me fish, which is, you know, you just had this happen to you, right? There's a, a lot of pressure when people are watching you. So, but I, I was standing here because the water was a little lower, and I cast up here, and I caught a trout while everybody was watching. It was, uh, yeah. So, so, so I saw the trout rise, he gave away his position, right? They don't move very much. They stay in one lane, they try to conserve their energy by finding a spot where the water isn't moving too quickly. And if they see a bug coming down, or, or a minnow or something floating their way, swimming their way, they'll come over to the fast water and snatch it, right? So you want you 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 see where the trout fed the first time, and then you cast above. You put your fly out in front of him so the fly then then is flowing toward his mouth. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's <laughs> that's yeah. You have to know how to do that, and that that's, that's part of the uh, part of the challenge.
1: The little I've seen of that is some real.
0: There can be, yes. There can be grace in casting. And then I just
1: wonder if, if there's strength involved in
0: that as well. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's about powering it. It's about, oh, this is really interesting. This is what Lefty was really good at. Developing a cast so that it, it doesn't require you a lot of strength from you. He was actually opposed to that. So he figured out ways to build that momentum and put energy into the line without using a lot of your muscle. So, I'm gonna put this down for one minute. So, I can do it without damaging anybody in here, I think. So, so when the line comes back, when the line goes back, there's a way to, um, when the line is shooting behind you, right? and you come forward, when it shoots behind you, by pulling on the line, you build up momentum and energy in the line so that when you come forward, it shoots out much further than, uh, it shoots out further. So you strip off a lot of line like this, right? Say you wanted to go, I wanted to go across Park Avenue. I could probably do it from here if there wasn't a wall. I probably could. Um, there's a way to build up energy in, the, in this motion, this 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock motion. And Lefty, that's what Lefty was... Well, I mean, he was pretty good at teaching. <laughs> it could be a, bit, a little baffling sometimes. But it was all about putting energy into the line by building up the momentum. So, no, it's not, it's not about powering it. No. Yeah. yeah. It's very interesting. I wish I could demonstrate it. Do you have a question? No. Patricia. I did. Can you? Oh. Can you? I'm okay. Sorry. okay. Can you talk about the fatherhood part of fishing? The fatherhood part? Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> so I had a, uh, you'll see in the book, I had a, um, I had a tough relationship with my father, and um, the best times we had together were fishing. So uh, I guess one of my regrets is that he didn't, we didn't take time enough to do that together. And I wanted to correct that in my own life, whether it was fishing or anything else. Um, that's why I wrote the book. It's very tough to talk about. <laughs> it was the toughest part about writing this book, and I felt a little uh, guilty at times saying the things I said about my father in the book, but I feel like I had to get it out uh, get it done, finally. And um, I just wish we'd had more time doing that. Um, I have
1: that
0: now. Oh, <laughs> well, this is this turned out to be pretty interesting to me. I feel very lucky to fish with my son. And my friend, Tom James, w- who had a nickname, Bushhog, Bushhog, he used to say, he said, you're, you're a wealthy man if you fish with your son, or your daughter. I tried my daughter. She may still come around. There's a lot more women getting into fly fishing now. Uh, but she's she resisted it. But it, when she was little, she liked it, and then she didn't like it. When Nick was small, he sort of liked it. I try. I didn't. I never forced it on him. But when he was 12 years old, when he was 12 years old, I sent him into a pool with a fly rod, and he had, you know, you have to be a certain age to do this. It's, I don't think you can be six or seven years old and use a fly rod. You gotta be 10, 11, 12 years old, maybe, in order to figure all this out and to be able to physically do it. But, you know, when he was 12 years old, he went into a pool by himself on the North Branch and he caught a fly, he caught a trout on a fly, on a dry fly, which is like the optimum experience. The optimum experience is casting a dry fly, having the trout see it and come to the surface Getting a rise out of him, right? So, And Nick did that, and I think that's what did it. Uh, I don't even know if he remembers that, but I remember it very well. And so now it's like, yeah, let's go fishing, right? And he goes off by himself, too. He doesn't need me around, and he outfishes me all the time now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You don't feel guilty about that at all, do you? No. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't say. That, I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I say it no, as a point not. of pride, really. Yeah, really. Good. Yeah. He's become kind of a trout whisperer here. Yeah. 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 But you can read the book as I, I deal with my father in the, Once and for All in the book. I think. Patricia. Oh,
2: climate
0: change. Does trout need cold water? What's going to happen? Yeah, trout need uh, cold water. So. Um, you know the dams, the the, the tailwaters. Those are artificial, man-made, right? The dams that create the cold water. It's the natural cold water places that are are going to be where it's going to be a danger. Yeah. So there's an interesting project going on in Maryland just to get landowners to plant more trees, plant more trees. And the the water that we drink in Baltimore comes from the gunpowder watershed or the Pretty Boy watershed. It starts way up in Carroll County, Baltimore County. Up in the woods, up on farmland in, in dozens of little creeks and the lakes and runs. The, and brook trout live in them. It's not a fishery. It's not a place where you would go to fish because the woods are thick and the, the land is private, right? The the conservation group that I belong to, Trout Unlimited, is trying to get more landowners to recognize the value of these creeks that feed Pretty Boy Reservoir, that feed Lock Raven, that feed Baltimore City, and that eventually feeds the Chesapeake Bay too, right? By getting them just to plant more trees. So, I don't know what's going to be done about <laughs> climate change. Uh, We've got to do something fast uh, internationally, right? But locally, that's one thing that that could really help is if uh, with with the cold water fisheries is just if people planted more trees. Slowly, slowly, landowners are beginning to recognize, farmers included, that you can't let cattle walk through the, these creeks. Uh, you can't continue to let uh, erosion take tear away at these creeks because the water is very va- it's valuable. It's a valuable resource. And so, so Trout Unlimited has this big uh, brook trout restoration project going. In Carroll County and Baltimore County, it's a. Vast, I wish I had a map. It's a. It's a vast area, and they're actually going door to door to try to get landowners to, to buy into it, and to because the, the state will provide trees for the planting. So you you provide a canopy. You know I don't I don't know if you noticed this. This is something I had to think about. Like all these trees were cut down in Maryland and everywhere. Pennsylvania, it was cut. Farmers pioneers. They cut everything down, and they exposed the rivers to the sunlight, right? And they ruined a lot of rivers by opening out for farming. Now the East Coast we're going, is sort of going through a greening renaissance again because the farming all moved to the middle of the country, right? There's less farming in Vermont and Maine, New England, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and you're seeing a re-greening of places, which is actually you know really, really a great thing. Up in, up in Pennsylvania, there's the Grand Canyon of Pennsylvania, the Pine Creek area, Pine Creek Valley. I saw a picture of it, like, in 1914. It was all mud. It was mud with sticks coming out of the ground. They took everything, the loggers. Now it's a big, vast, green, beautiful gorge, um, the Grand Canyon of Pennsylvania. Uh, except they're doing fracking up there now, right. so... <laughs> the only, yeah, right. So... Um, uh, but another example of that would be Garrett County. Garrett County, uh, they harvested all the trees for the re- Mr. Garrett's Railroad and for building houses. And um, By 1914, I read in the history of Garrett County that there were no trees in Garrett County. Now, if you, and I thought, wait a minute, that's, that seems like an extreme statement. How can there be no trees, no old-growth trees in Garrett County except for what was preserved in Swallow Falls? In Swallow Falls, there's old-growth hemlock, hemlock that is like 360, 380 years old or something. But uh, it was all mud, right? So coal mining <laughs> and logging, you can't. Have, it's hard to really imagine it, right? But if you drive out to Baltimore County or Hartford County through a farm area and you see a, a creek flowing through what looks like a meadow, there were all trees there once upon a time. And there were probably brook trout in that creek that you see as you drive by. So I need to bring that back. Anyway, anybody else? Hmm, huh. okay. Well, that's it. Oh, no, good. Good. One more question, sir. Yeah. It's okay. He wants to leave. You want to leave is fine. Yeah, it's okay.
1: Oh, okay.
2: I'm sorry, but I'm... No,
0: that's all right. I don't mind. No, I have a better pen. Yeah. When we to put Happy Father's Day or anything like that, or just no, my no, name? No, just, just Okay. Well, thank you very much. I hope you enjoy it. All right. You can I'll leave. I'll me. take your question. You can yeah, leave. <laughs> yeah, Nick, I'm you want to take? I'm curious, I'm
1: curious about the. Uh, you, you know, you talk about. It. I, I grew up doing what, what you would describe as your father's fishing. We ate everything we caught. Yeah. Know, uh, bass and whiting for the surf and and. Um, And as you know, I spent time in Africa and and did a lot of stories, and I spent a lot of time on game parks, and and I'm one of the few sort of, uh, I I get this argument, I'm sort of a pro-hunting person in terms of uh, preserving game, because we have this uh, uh, sort of, the problem is not individual animals and taking away individual animals, the problem is habitat. If you have habitat, the animals will fill it. Right. And one way to ensure this habitat is is making it valuable, and one way to make it valuable is that people hunt the animals because they pay a huge amount of money for that. And, uh, and and in fact, if you look at the history of the conservation movement, Teddy Roosevelt, and all that they were all hunters, you know. Right. And so I'm just curious in the in the fishing world is is there a sense that these these because what you were just describing the trout and loon is exactly the same thing, preserving habitat that that if you take the if if you take the trout and eat them that they won't be replaced naturally.
0: Yes, if uh, the Gunpowder River was not a catch-and-release r- river for 12 miles. You see, l- let me explain how that's managed, right? Pretty Boy Dam to Moncton, catch-and-release. Catch trout, put them back. Below that, Moncton down to Sparks, down to Glencoe, down to Lock Raven is called put-and-take fishing. The state raises trout in a hatchery, puts them in there, lets everybody know when they put them in there, and guys go out, men and women, mostly guys, with worms and Velveeta balls, and catch the trout that come out of the hatchery and take them home and eat them. So that's how it's managed, right? So you have the wild trout, leave them alone, you can catch them but put them back, because we're 20 miles, 25 miles from a city, we're in a big metropolitan area, if everybody took them, there would be none left. Really, they would wipe them out. The, the creek I write about in Pennsylvania had wild trout in it, just naturally wild trout, without doing anything, but the state put trout in hatchery trout in the river with the wild trout, and the fishermen made no distinction they would just they'd catch them all and really, they took so many fish out of that river it was it was kind of depressing it wasn't managed very well and then one year the Pennsylvania said. We're not going to stock this river anymore because there's wild trout in it. Go someplace else, and they did, and left alone, it came back, and is a, is a really terrific fishery now. So you have to manage things like that. Um, I'm not against eating trout. I'm against eating the wild trout because I don't. I just don't think even even like a place like this out in western Maryland. I wouldn't say it gets fished a lot. It doesn't have as much fishing pressure as, as a river near the, a metropolitan area does because it's harder to get to. You've got to pay a guide to take you in there. Um, still, there's something about... Uh, just, maybe we should just leave them alone altogether. <laughs> I shouldn't even fish them. I mean, you could argue that you shouldn't even fish farm, right? Um, the, the fishery, the habitat is what's important, the cold water, right? So, anyway... Until they say we can't fish for them, I think I'll fish for them. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah. So, thank you for
2: coming. Thank you, Jim, so yeah. much for sharing your
0: story and Nick for demonstrating. And yeah. thank you all for spending
1: your evening with us. Everybody, everybody. <laughs> we're done? We're done. That's about right.